Amen. Take your copy of the Word. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you're using the Pew Bible there in front of you, and I encourage you to do that if you don't have a, a paper copy. I think it's on page 260. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's just so cool to me. I mentioned this last week how God in His His perfect timing has us in a passage of Scripture where we are, are seeing from David's perspective what we are celebrating this season in, in the Christian community. That from David's perspective, he's receiving this promise from God that looks forward to the fulfillment of, of his promise of an anointed king. And we, looking back, are celebrating it. And so it's just neat how God's word being as timeless and as perfect as it is, as it is, just kind of puts us in that place. And so um, let's just look at the text together. We've been spending now two weeks in chapter seven leading up to David's response of what God has told him. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter again, um, but let's back up a little bit in chapter seven. And start reading, uh, let's see, uh, go to verse uh, 10. God has made some personal promises to David concerning David and his family. We'll see that in his prayer. But now he's making some promises that look way beyond David. He says in verse 10 of 2 Samuel 7, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. So that they and, and not be disturbed, excuse me, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, 
the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed from yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are God forever, and your words are true. So let those words penetrate our hearts and bear fruit for your glory. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. When Jesus' disciples needed to learn how to pray, and they did, they asked Jesus to teach them, and he did. And today, he does the same thing for us through his servant David. Now, I have said probably bunches of times, David is not our role model as we have been studying his life through First and Second Samuel. Today, he is. Today, we need to do like David. As we see God's work in the past, as we see what he's doing today, and as we see what he's promised, we need to be like David in the way that we pray, in the way that we come before him. And we can through Christ. So as he comes before the Lord in this passage of Scripture, with a word from God, nothing will ever be the same in David's life. Oh, that God's word would do that to you and me as we come before it, that we could just say with David, everything has changed. Everything changed for David. Everything changed for David's family. And indeed, everything changed, he says in this prayer, in this word, everything changed for all humanity, for all time in this promise that God gave David. So let's look at David's response. It has been said, and I put this quote, I think, in your sermon notes, that the fire to do in the Christian life comes only from being soaked in the fuel of what God has already done. So our fuel for doing what God has called us to do is the recognition, the reality of what God has done for us. Now, remember, what was David's deal? He came in at the beginning of chapter 7 saying, God, I have a great idea. I want to do this for you. I want to build you a house. And God quickly set him down and said, no. But I will build you a house, David. 
I've never told any of my prophets, any of the judges before to build me a house. That time will come and your son will do it, David. But I'm not asking you to build me a house. Instead, I'm telling you what I'm going to do for you. And he does. And this is David's response to it. First thing I want us to see in verse 18 is that God's word should draw us into his presence. When we open this book, when we go before the Lord in his word, we are literally going before the Lord. God's word draws us into his presence. We, that's, that's a reality that I, I so often forget, but one that we need to be reminded. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Just in many ways, there could be a, a period there, and it would be appropriate. One of the things that we need to recognize is what it says in verse 17. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God revealed himself to David through the prophet. And the, the idea of the word coming to Nathan, to David, and the idea of a vision might cause us to say, okay, Nathan heard something as a prophet and he saw something with his eyes. And I don't, I don't think that's what this means. I think what this means is that the word gave Nathan a vision. I think the vision Nathan had is, is what he heard from God. And that vision wasn't so much this, this picture that he sees with his eyes. It's a perspective of the heart. This word of God gave Nathan a perspective, a vision of what was coming that he then shared with David. And I think I, I, I just I see this not so much as some ecstatic vision experience that Nathan had and he passed on. That these words to Nathan for David are so profound that they change the way David sees things. They change the way you and I should see things. So the word is the vision. The word of God is this change. And this revelation from God to David put David in a different place. Now, it happened literally. He's in his cedar palace, right? This massively beautiful place that he lives in. And God's the whole problem in David's eyes was, God, you're in this ratty old tent. The ark is there. And the ark is this representation of God's presence. Remember that. And David literally is moved from that palace. He goes and sits in the presence of God in that tent. So his not only does this word change his heart, but it puts him in a different place, literally in God's presence there before the ark. And it gives him this new perspective, a new perspective of who he is, who God is, and what God is doing. And that's this picture. It's a picture of what God has done in the past, what he's doing now, and what he will do. So it's a new perspective. And this new perspective then impacts David, and we see that in the way that he prays, all right? Now, there's something going on here that I, I just need to touch on. It says that David went and sat down before the Lord. This is the only example in the Bible of someone sitting before God in prayer. It's the only other example. The only other person who sits in the presence of God is who? Jesus himself. And so David sitting here before the Lord is, 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 it, it's profound and it should point us and cause us to think about, okay, what's going on here? David is a prophet. Okay. We understand that from Acts chapter two. 
In his Pentecost sermon, Peter referred to David as a prophet. Therefore, being a prophet, he said, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, and that oath, by the way, is what I read in Psalm 110. So David is a prophet. David fulfills the role of a priest, right? In Acts, I mean, in chapter 6, when Jason was leading us through first, uh, 2 Samuel 6, we saw David offering up sacrifices like a priest. We saw him ushering the ark in like a priest. So David is fulfilling this role of a priest. He's a prophet. He's a priest. But wait a minute. The priest never sat down in the presence of God, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Right? It says in Hebrews chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. He stands because the work is never done. But the writer of Hebrews says that when Jesus had offered his sacrifice once for all, he then sat down at the right hand of God. So the fact that David is sitting before the ark, I believe, it's not the Holy of Holies, that, that has not been built yet. But here, before God's presence, before the ark, David is sitting, and it's a stunning scene. And I don't think it's anything other than God's Word showing us how David is being elevated to this role of of God's anointed one, but causing us to look beyond that. It has already told us that David and his sons will be seen as sons of God, right? I, I read that previously. But here's what one writer said. David had humbled himself before the Lord, dancing like a fool before the ark. And he did. (laughs) But God did not want him to remain in a posture of abject humility. David fell to the ground so that Yahweh could pick him up and set him on a throne. Hannah prayed this in first, not not our Hannah, you know. You know, we've been talking about you a lot. I don't know if you knew that, but. Hannah prayed this in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The Lord will give strength to his anointed. Remember that in in, in chapter 2. I think it's in verse 10. Hannah's prayer looked forward to God elevating his anointed. David is this foreshadowing. He is a type pointing us to Jesus, who is our prophet, who is our priest, who is our king, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He's pointing us there. So that, that little word, I, I just needed to take some time to, to point that out to us. But he sits before God and look, look at how God's word should cause us to praise God for what he's done. To praise him for his grace. To, to thank him for his grace. David says, who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? There's some things that I think are important as you study God's word. In a passage like this, look for words that are repeated. Okay, look for words or phrases that are repeated and key in on those. And there are three or four words throughout this passage that I've read this morning that are repeated. Not once, not twice. Most of them at least six, seven, eight, or ten times. Pay attention to those. One of the first phrases that's pointed out and repeated often is the word house. And what have we seen? David wanted to build God a structure, right? A house for the ark to sit in. What is God building for David? A house. But it's not a a house with walls. It's a dynasty, right? A legacy. 
Your sons will be on the throne forever. You will have a son on the throne forever. So the word house is repeated seven times in this prayer. The words for God's name, a unique way that David says God's name. Notice what he says. O Lord God. The idea there is, is it's, it's the word Adonai and, and, Elohim, and Yahweh. Master and Lord. Master and Lord. So I love, I love the message version of this. David says, who am I, my master God, and what is my family? That you have brought me to this place in life. And that's nothing compared to what's coming. For you have also spoken of my family far into the future. Oh, my master God. Master God. It's repeated in this passage seven times David refers to God that way. Oh, church, let's cut out this man upstairs garbage. Let's cut out this, you know, taking God's name and trying to make it something that's so horizontal on our level. David recognized who God was. You are my master. My master. Yes, David is the king. But he's just a prince serving under the sovereign king. Master and God. The Lord of heaven's armies. And so David repeats this phrase seven times. This, the other phrase that's repeated in this passage eight times by my count is the word servant. So David, as the king of Israel, has the royal prerogative of coming into God's presence. And yet he is still only a servant, a slave of God. So those words are repeated over and over and over and over. And it's important that we recognize that. The other word that's repeated six times is forever. It's going to last. So with that, with that in mind, he says, who am I, O Lord God? And, and, and what is my family that you have brought me to this place? And so David is just praising God and thanking him for what he's done in his life individually. And, and, he's, and what has he done? Well, he took him from the sheepfold, from in the field, and brought him to be the king of God's people. And David says, in light of what you promised me in the days that are coming, that is nothing. Well, it is something, right? I mean, all of us who are in Christ can testify to what God has done for us and how far he's brought us. That's a part of the story of the gospel in our lives. But church, based on what this Bible tells us about what's coming, it's nothing. You ain't seen nothing yet. And David recognizes that. He recognizes what God has done for him as an individual. It's a small thing in your eyes, Lord. This personal promise you're making me, even that promise, Lord, has implications that go far beyond. That's nothing compared to what you've done for me. So praise God for what he's done for us individually. But praise God for what he's done for all humanity. David says, and this, he says, is instruction for mankind. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. That great Old Testament commentator and teacher, Walter Kaiser, says that this is God's new mandate for humanity. And I believe what he means by that is that what David is saying here is that, Lord, everything you're saying to me, 
is instruction. In, in the Hebrew language, it's Torah Adam, the law of the man. This is God's Torah for the descendants of Adam. It's his instruction for all humanity. And what is that instruction? I believe that instruction is the salvation that God promised in Genesis 3.15. When God said that there would be a snake crusher who would crush the head of the serpent. That when God made that promise to Abraham that through your descendants all the nations shall be blessed. Your descendants, he said, will be as the stars of the heaven like sand on the seashore. That this instruction for mankind is that God's means of salvation is coming through this promise that he is making to David. It is the instruction for all humanity. This changes everything for everybody. And what that means is for, for those that, that our sister's trying to reach in that Buddhist country, it does not matter what your mom and dad may have believed. This is instruction for how you can be saved and know the God who made you. It does not matter that your mom and dad were born Baptist. That I've always been in this church. No, this is instruction for you that your eternity is based on your personal relationship with Jesus and what you do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with what your mom and dad did before you. This is instruction for all mankind. This is why we give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. This is why our budget has all of these mission partners. Because the sin problem is the world's problem that is only answered in Christ. And this instruction for mankind, Torah to Adam, is what all humanity needs to hear to understand God's purposes for their life. And David gets it. David gets it. I believe he understands that God's promise in Genesis is coming through him. And I believe David is overwhelmed with the fact that God's promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled through him and his descendants. It's, 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 it's an amazing moment in David's life. And, and so David, he gets it. And so he says there, I understand that this is instruction. What more can David say to you? So in verse 20, it's like, I'm speechless. But really, he's not. <laughs> I mean, he's not speechless because the words keep coming, right? I mean, this prayer just gets richer and richer. But it's like, my words are going to be inadequate to express to you the reality of what you're telling me. And, and you know your servant. Look, just follow along with me. He says, what more can David say? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. You know your servant, Lord. That's a good thing to pray when we come into God's presence. Lord, you know. In fact, David would understand this to the extent that in Psalm 139, Lord, you have searched me and you know me, he says. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You know my thoughts from afar. You know my path and my lying down. This does not mean that God knows something about David. Oh, he does. But he knows David because he has made him. He knows all that there is about him. And God's knowledge of David goes far beyond just mere facts and information. God's knowledge of David is God's purpose for David. And God's purpose for David comes right out of God's heart 
right out of God's intentions. Notice what he says. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So there's a connection point here, I think, that's really cool. In verse 20, he says, you know your servant. And at the end of verse 21, he says, you have made all this known to me. That bridge from God knowing and us knowing comes right out of God's heart. It's your promise, God. And God's promises are not just something that he says. It's who he is. Right? This is your heart, oh God. All of your purposes come from your heart. You remember back when we were studying in 1 Samuel that David was a man after God's own heart? And, and I stated then what most commentators understand is that this is not about David having a good heart. It's about God's heart for David. And according to God's purposes and intentions, he called out this undeserving, unknown shepherd boy and made him king over his people. And this heart of God, this gracious heart of God that's being poured out on behalf of, of David now... And those promises that he are making is just revealing God's greatness. <laughs> he says, according to your heart, according to your promise, all this greatness is being revealed to make your servant know it. You want to know how great our God is? Just go to him in his word and see his promises. Just see how gracious and good he is. All the judgment and the wrath of God will be marvelous in an unbelievable way to see but that is not God's primary nature God's nature is his grace and his goodness and to see his promises poured out is to see his greatness so he says praise God for what he's done for me individually praise God for his greatness for his heart that's going to be seen by all humanity and praise God he says even for his community for his people of faith look at verses 23 and 24 God, he says, there is none like you, Lord, in verse 22. You are great. And I'll get to that in just a second. But he says in verse 22, and, and your people Israel, who is like your people? The one nation that you went to redeem, making yourself a name through this people and doing for them great and awesome things by drive. David's hung up on the word great. It's just over and over and over. You've done these great and awesome things by driving before your people out those who had made their own gods, a nation and its gods. Lord, put them down on behalf of his people. You have established for yourself in verse 24, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Praise God for what he's doing through his redeemed community. That's what David's doing there. There are no people like your people, God, because there is no God like you. And the connection point between you, God, and your greatness, and your people and their greatness, is your grace. Your redemption. Remember that Passover lamb who was slain, and the blood on the lintel of the door. That blood that made the angel of death pass over. God's redeeming grace seen in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. What is special about us in this room who are in Christ is not us. It's what God has done for us in Christ. And that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And praise God for what he's doing. It's just, it's just amazing how our perspective of God's redemptive purposes for his people 
should change our perspective of each other. And then the way we pray for each other. That'll, that'll be an application point that I get to in just a second. But look at verse 22. This revelation from God draws David into God's presence. This revelation from God causes David to praise God and thank him for his grace in the past, his grace today, his grace to come. But this revelation from God more than anything else, and I think this is really a kind of a highlight of the whole passage, it just causes us to praise God for who he is. And who is he? <laughs> He's great. Look at verse 22. You are great, O Lord. There is none like you. And there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. If you just do a word search, and I would encourage you to do that, uh, one of the tools I use, and I mentioned it before, is, is Blue Letter Bible. It's just a good online study tool. And if you'll just go in and type in the word great, and then you can narrow down your search to specific books, even specific chapters, and just... But if you go and just see how hung up on this word great David is, because David is hung up on this great God, and it's just repeated. Psalm 35, 27, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. Psalm 40, 16, great is the Lord. Psalm 47, 2, the Lord is the most high. He is to be feared, a great king above all the earth. Psalm 48, 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Psalm 57, 10, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 66, 3, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Psalm 95, 3, for the Lord is a great God, the great king above all gods. And you go on and on and on. The center of this is David gets this revelation from God and then prays it back to God, is extolling God for his greatness. Just praising God for the character of God that God has revealed to him in this word. God's word to us should cause us to praise him for who he is. And the only way that we can do that well, church, is just to pick up this copy of God's word and pray it back to him. Pray it back to him. And that's where we go next. God's word should cause us to pray God's promises. I don't know what to pray about. Well, open your Bible. Open your Bible. And just pray it back to God. Pray it back to the Lord. The Puritan William Grinnell said, prayer is nothing but the promise reversed or God's word turned inside out and formed into an argument and retorted back again upon God by faith. That's what prayer is. Prayer should be just taking God's word and turning it around and praying it back to him. And as David does this, well, just listen to him. Look at verse 25. He says, and now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. David heard this word from the Lord and he has the audacity to turn around in almost the same breath and say, now, Lord, do it. Do it. And thrills the heart of God when his children take him at his word. And pray it back to him and say, do it, Lord. Do it. And that's what David does here. 
He says, Lord, pray back your words. And, and as he does that, notice that he's not doing this for himself. I mean, that wasn't even the reason that God redeemed his people. You did all these great things for your people, Lord, to make this name for yourself, to make yourself this great name. And David is praying back to God his promises. Look at what he says in verse 26, that your name will be magnified forever. So that's what David is praying for. And that's the reason why he's praying it, that your eternal renown, God, your fame, your glory will go forever because as you fulfill your promise to me, which is a promise of forever. And as he's praying this word, he's just praying for God to confirm his words. And notice what he says about God's word. Your word is true. This is the Bible's way of saying that you can trust every word in this word because it is God's word. Right? Do we understand that? That this word is true for us. This word is true because God is truth. Jesus said he was the truth. And that's what the point of this is coming. David is just repeating these prayers back. Notice what he says in verse 27. Because you have made this revelation about building the house, he says, I have found courage to pray this prayer to you. It does take courage to go before the Lord. It takes courage that comes from God's word, comes from the absolute assurance of God's promises. It's a fight. You heard Hannah say that. In the midst of difficulty and all this turmoil that goes on around us, when things seem to be falling apart around us constantly, the one rock we have, the one place we have to stand is God and his promises. And it gives us courage to pray, not courage that we muster up from inside of us, but the courage that comes from that faith that we put in Christ and the courage to pray this prayer to you, Lord, based on your word. And so he says in verse 26, and now, O master God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised these things to your servant. You've promised this. And this final prayer from David is now, Lord. Bless me, just like you promised to. Bless this house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. And all your blessings shall be, and, and, and with your blessings shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. There's no blessing that we have in our lives other than the blessing that comes from God. All the rest of it, you know, I don't know where it comes from. Just this recognition that from God, through his word, by his promises, through his son, the anointed King Jesus, this blessing shall be on the house of your servant, and it is a forever blessing. Let me just give you some points of application here as we wrap up this amazing chapter. David looked forward to the fulfillment of God's promise in an anointed king. And Christ the King is this gift, right? Christ the King is this gift. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. He is the King. In his sufferings, this King wore this purple robe. On his cross, this King had that sign put above him, saying so. 
At his resurrection and his ascension, he was taken back up into the throne room of heaven and was seated at the right hand of God, where he reigns today, holding this crazy world together by his powerful word, the writer of Hebrews tells us. In his suffering, he bore your sins. Trust him. Because our King Jesus lived and died perfectly and substitutionary for us, we can come into his presence today. And I invite you to come into his presence and just confess him as your Lord and as your King, turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. You see, the song that David is singing in this prayer is a song that we sing every time we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Church, if we go before the Lord and say anything other than who am I, that you would save me through the blood of Christ. If we say anything other than that in the beginning, we're off. What amazing grace. What amazing grace. Trust him as your king. Secondly, Christ the king is the fulfillment of God's promises to all mankind. He is the teacher of God's instructions. Torah Adam. I know we struggle in our prayer life. All of us do. And our king is so gracious and sweet just to say, teach us to pray, Lord. Just teach us to pray. And turn to Luke 11 or turn to Matthew 6. And let's just start with that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. It's a gutsy prayer. It's gutsy. It takes courage to pray it. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth and in my life as it is in heaven. Give me today my daily bread. I'm not going to fret over tomorrow. I'm just going to trust you today. And just work your way through that prayer. Ask the teacher to teach us to pray. Like David did. Thirdly. Christ the King. Is the Redeemer. Who has redeemed a people for himself. You are a chosen race. Church. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people prepared for God, for God. That's who we are in Christ. And and let's pray that for each other, about each other. And just recognize what a marvelous gift it is that we are in Christ. And what a marvelous obligation we have to pray for each other in that way. And finally, Christ the King is the Redeemer who is redeeming himself a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Pray that way. Pray that way. Live to that end. Give to that end. And in Revelation 7, when we see this multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne, pray that. Pursue that in in the way we serve, in the way we give. And in the way we go, wherever it is that God has called us to go. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you today. We praise you for your great grace. Thank you for David's prayer. Thank you for David's promise. Thank you for David's king, King Jesus. Who is seated right now at the right hand. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness when we 
Don't delight in the, the opportunity we have to approach you. Lord, for your forgiveness when we don't come into your presence with the boldness of Christ. God, thank you for Jesus. I pray, Lord, for the salvation of anyone in this room or who hears this who has not trusted in King Jesus. I pray that, Lord, for the people whom Hannah and her team will serve and teach and share. I pray that for others who are on that mission field. I pray that for us as you send us on mission here in Person County. And, Father, I pray you'd raise up in this church, Lord, an army of prayers, praying like David. And I ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.